My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better by writing a brief review on iTunes or by simply going to interviewthefuture.com and making a donation. Today, uh, my guest on the show is James W. Clement. I met James for the first time maybe in person around 2015 or 2016 when I had the pleasure of visiting him in his mouse lab in California where he was such a generous guest to take us around and to educate us on a number of interesting uh, topics of research that he was, some of which he was personally involved in with respect to human life extension and longevity. Now, interestingly enough, uh, I also learned many things about James at the time as a person. First, I discovered that he has a tremendously big heart because he adopt at the time he used to adopt um, uh, old horses that would otherwise end up going in a glue factory. So he would give them refuge uh, on his ranch in California. He was also a vegan and one of the, the first sort of non-proselytizing vegans that I met in my life. Uh, who sort of very casually during during lunch uh, remarked that he eats 99% of the time vegan and every once in a while he may throw on a, a fish on his salad or something like that. At the time, I didn't really pay that much attention to this, but every time I go back uh, and replay that episode in my mind, it did play in the long run impact in my decision to eventually become a vegan my myself. Now, most recently, James has moved his lab from California to Florida and has scaled his operations tremendously, and he will talk to us about that. But the reason why we have him on the show today is his fantastic new book called The Switch that I just finished reading. And I have to say, it's a must read for everyone who is interested in extending healthy lifespan as long as possible. So, without further ado, James, I'm so happy to have you on my show, my friend. It's been so long. It has been. Uh, it was great to meet you and your wife uh, in Apple Valley, and um, uh, great to be talking with you again. The pleasure is entirely mine, and I learned a lot from your book. Uh, and let me just start uh, outright by saying, and I like to often lay out my biases, uh, first of all, my audience by now knows that I'm already a vegan for four years, so that's clearly a bias. But but secondly, I I think that I accept seventy percent of your book outright as as hardcore, solid, scientifically based claims that I would absolutely um, adopt if I haven't already adopted in my life. Then I have about fifty percent of them which I'm about fifty fifty. I'm like. Yeah, I think we need a lot more research on this, but it could go either way. And then for the last 10 or 15 percent, I'm kind of skeptical. So it would take a lot more science to get me there. But this is where my predisposition is. But overall, I absolutely love your book. I think we can uh, agree that this is a very complex field and that um, lots more science needs to be done in all of these areas. Uh, many of the studies um, that I read to put this book together specifically in humans and especially having to do with fasting and um, ketogenic diets were incredibly 
short term. And then what you find in, in uh, someone loses weight, they get uh, much healthier. And then as soon as their weight plateaus, those health improvements seem to fade away, even though they're slimmer and, and uh, better off than they, than they were previously. So we really need uh, far more long-term studies in these areas to really tease out um, some of the benefits and how we apply them. I absolutely agree. And that's what good science is all about. So let's start first with who is James Clement? Because um, someone would say, who is, if you were to meet a person in a bar and you were to introduce yourself, who is James Clement according to himself in a sentence or two? Uh, well, that certainly depends on when you would have met me. Um, <laughs> so I was a, I was a lawyer uh, for a while. I started in Honolulu, then I moved to New York City. Um, I did um, international tax planning, which is sort of a euphemism for corporate uh, tax haven planning. Um, polo playing, uh, was on the board of uh, the Whitney Museum, uh, the junior committee, and um, uh, uh, soon tired of lawyers and working with lawyers and um, because I had been studying uh, molecular biology on my own, uh, having been sort of really uh, having my eyes open to the possibilities of extended life um, span by Dirk Pearson and Sandy Shaw, uh, a book I came across um, when I was in law school uh, called Life Extension, a Practical Scientific Approach. Uh, I think it came out in 1982. And um, that, that was probably one of the life-changing events in my, in my life. And uh, since that time, uh, Dirk and Sandy have become uh, good friends of mine, and I'm really appreciative for all the work they've done. Uh, so when I left law, I uh, actually opened a microbrewery brew pub in um, Ithaca, New York, where Cornell University is located. Um, uh, got involved in a couple other um, uh, businesses, and um, eventually, uh, by the 2000s, as both my, my own age was progressing and my parents were starting to um, get symptoms of, of old age, um, I, I really started taking um, learning more about uh, longevity very personally and dedicating more and more time to that. So how old are your parents, by the way? And if you don't mind me asking, how, are, how old are you? Um, I turned uh, 64 on November 1st, and uh, my parents are 88 and 89, respectively, and um, uh, in moderate health. My, my, um, my dad's in, in, I think, pretty good health um, for 88 years old. Um, but I've, you know, I think um, their own parents, my grandparents, um, did extremely well. And I think a lot of it had to do with their lifestyle, what they ate and what they did on a daily basis. Um, they were on both sides of the family farmers. They had really large gardens. They pretty much ate out of their, their gardens. And when they ate meat, it was almost always the... Um, pasture grazed uh, livestock of their own. Um, so completely different than what my parents are currently uh, able to, 
to do and uh, what most of America and Western civil, civilized countries, as we refer to them, uh, are able to do. <laughs> Uh, you know, in terms of, of getting most of our groceries from the grocery store and uh, eating um, a lot of, uh, you know, prepackaged or highly processed foods. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. And uh, where does Better Humans come into this, this whole play? And when did you start that organization? Uh, so you might remember a website in the... Um, uh, early 2000s run by um, a couple of Canadians uh, called Better Humans. And um, th they um, they ran it for a couple of years. It was very similar to Ray Kurzweil. George Dvorsky was one of them, wasn't he? George Dvorsky was, was uh, um, a main part of it. And, um, and so they were going to shut it down. And it was basically a... Um, I would say transhumanist uh, style website uh, talked mostly about uh, uh, exponential technologies, uh, biotech, uh, nanotechnology, uh, AI, uh, and human longevity. And I had a very strong interest in these areas. So rather than shut it down, I offered to buy it from them. And so I took over um, Better Humans, um, I guess around maybe. 2007 or 8, and um, operated it for a while. I became the um, executive director of the World Transhumanists Association and started H Plus Magazine, uh, ran that for a couple of years. And when I ran that, I closed down the website for Better Humans. Um, but I really liked the name because I think it really expressed my interest in humanism and uh, transhumanism. And so when I started really getting involved in life extension, I uh, set it back up as a, uh, a nonprofit corporation. And I have done the bulk of my research now uh, as a uh, 501c3 medical research organization. That's fantastic. And it's an important point. So basically, all the life extension research or human longevity research that you're involved in goes under that not-for-profit. That's right. Very well. Okay. Great. So, so um, let me just ask you, so would you call yourself a transhumanist then? I definitely do, yes. Um, so I think that um, evolution has gotten man to a, um, uh, a really interesting place where we have the ability to understand and observe things in nature uh, to make great discoveries, but we're also still um, almost completely bound by um, things that we evolved uh, from our reptilian and mammalian side of our, of our brain um, that, you know, leads people to uh, heinous crimes, that leads uh, societies to things like war and completely disregarding um, the health and life of other people uh, around the planet. So I think that humans could do better um, by essentially taking evolution into our own hands. And um, I believe uh, um, sort of what uh, Singularity University tries to preach, which is that we can use exponential technologies to improve uh, humankind's um, 
place on earth and our uh, ability to, to live well. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason why I'm asking you, and Singularity University is a whole other different topic here that I've talked about before, so I'm not going to get involved into that one. It's not our topic of conversation, but the reason why I ask is this. You know, like you, I've been around the transhumanist community. I mean, you've been a lot longer around the transhumanist community than me, but I've been around for maybe 15 years, let's say. And one thing that kind of I have observed, and you correct me, please, if I'm wrong in that observation, um, is the fact that it seems to me that the vast majority of transhumans want the easy way out. In other words, transhumanists are happy to take a pill to give them life extension and longevity. But most transhumanists, and there are some very notable exceptions, like Max Moore and Natasha Vitamore, George Worski is a good example too, but most transhumanists don't do basic lifestyle choices, don't pay attention to nutrition, uh, don't pay attention to things that we can do today, here and now, at very uh, low financial cost or otherwise, to promote our own health and to extend our healthy lifespan, and instead hope for and are in support of something like a magic pill that would come and give us this like indefinite life extension and so on. Is that a correct observation? I think it's um, uh, more correct than not. And I think that a lot of people who are um, maybe classified as uh, techno-optimists um, are people that are generally optimistic about the future and they see the trends in science and they think that um, at least to some extent, uh, some of them think that um, you can uh, simply wait, uh, whether it's five years or 10 years or 20 years and um, aging will be cured. Uh, cryonics will be um, you know, something that people regularly sign up for and, you know, or just simply if something happens to you, you're brought back to life later. Um, and um, they therefore maybe think that doing the, this hard daily grind of um, watching out for your nutrition, getting exercise, um, uh, you know, meditating, all of these things are really, um, a waste of time because, you know, it'll all be fixed in, you know, five, 10, 15 years. Um, certainly this philosophy has been going on a while. And I know people, you and I probably even talked about this uh, by correspondence, at least uh, 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 decades ago, um, that, you know, people were predicting that AI uh, would be solving all of our problems. Um, uh, by this time already. And um, I, I've got some good friends that, that work at Google and are, are specifically in, um, you know, the areas working on AI. And they basically say, we're not much closer to actual uh, machine learning in terms of being able to, uh, let's say, read all the PubMed articles and make their own hypothesis and and um, not necessarily find correlations because that's a mathematical, statistical kind of, of problem that computers are really great at, but really understanding 
um, what they're reading and having some sort of human-like uh, thought process of where do we go from here? What what experiments are needed to, um, you know, clear things up or, or prove some of the hypotheses that have been, you know, shown. Um, and um, so it's really us that have to solve this problem. And it's really us for the time being that have to make sure that we make it to 100 before we can really start thinking about making it to 150 or 300 or whatever your goal is. And, and I have this discussion with life extensionists all the time, um, you know, who want to fly down to um, the Caribbean or Panama or the Bahamas somewhere to get stem cell uh, transplants or, you know, take um, compounds that they've read about. And some of these people have BMIs of, you know, 35, 40. Oh, my um, goodness. And, and um, you know, are, are not getting exercise and they're looking for this exact magic bullet that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's why I like your book and your attitude so much. And I've learned from both because as you put it so eloquently, it is our own responsibility and we can do a lot, maybe 90% of, of the outcome of getting to 100 may depend on our own personal choices and behavior. And only maybe 10%, and we'll talk about that later, could stem from, from genetics, which is where your book comes into play because it ends up the last chapter with a number of very specific recommendations, uh, diet plans, etc., and and lifestyle plans that we can follow. Now, Let's start first with your title, The Switch. What is The Switch, James? Um, so The Switch is basically sort of a metaphor for a uh, protein complex called mTOR, which is in all of your somatic cells, um, so everything except uh, primarily your, your uh, blood cells. And this um, metabolic switch uh, primarily is designed um, by nature. Um, it, it arose in bacteria and um, presumably the bacteria that developed this uh, out-evolved the bacteria that didn't. And so all life on earth uh, basically has this same switch in it to one extent or another, plants and, and animals. Um, it's become more complex over the billions of years of evolution and uh, uh, Humans, um, I think, derive a great amount of our longevity on the basis of the historic ability for this switch to go back and forth between a growth mechanism and a, a repair mechanism. So in the book, I talk a lot about how this mechanism works, um, the, the two phases, the anabolic growth phase, the catabolic repair phase, and also the general um, way in which this is manipulated by diet, by environment, by exercise, and um, even by nutraceuticals and pharmaceuticals. Fantastic. And where does autophagy come into play with respect to the switch and how is it different or what does it stand for? Well, the... Uh, going back to how it evolved, um, you can look at it as um, 
nature requires organisms to, you know, have nourishment and nourishment is not always available. So over time, bacteria develop this uh, ability to essentially hunker down during times of deprivation. So when nutrients were scarce, uh, it could be for any number of reasons, uh, you know, they simply uh, overfed on what was available in the area that they were located in, or there was a drought or other, you know, seasonal problem. And so the ability to hunker down and to get some of your nutrients from inside your own cell um, became a protective mechanism that allowed them to survive longer in hopes that you would overcome this um, lack of nutrients, either, you know, the rainy season would come back or, or um, uh, the, you know, the environment would change and, and you would have nutrients again. So in our particular case, um, uh, there are a number of upstream sensors that look for um, indications that you have sufficient glucose levels um, and uh, sufficient protein, amino acid levels, and enough oxygen that your cell can metabolize properly. And this tells the cell whether it's okay to make lots of proteins, which is its normal function, or to reproduce. And, um, you know, these processes are critical to life. Um, so, uh, autophagy is really turned on when any one of these sensors says we're lacking. And so what happens is that um, mTOR, um, which is part of this, this switch, gets um, downregulated and autophagy gets upregulated. And what autophagy is, is basically um, these double membranes that are formed that uh, are inside the cells and surround uh, molecules. They can be uh, something as small as a virus or a bacterium or a misfolded protein and as large as an entire organelle like mitochondria that's inside the cell. And it basically surrounds them, moves them to the lysosome, uh, which is an acidic pouch inside the cell that dissolves and breaks down uh, what's ever in these membranes. So I refer to this metaphorically as like little garbage trucks that go around the inside of the cell and pick up uh, waste material um, or harmful material and bring it to the recycling center. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's an adequate metaphor for our purposes. You can also look at a cell, a single cell in our body as an entire city. And you know, all kinds of different functions going on in that city, including power production and, you know, street maintenance and all these other things. Um, and those are useful metaphors, but it doesn't really um, uh, sort of properly convey the complexity of what goes on inside the cell and things that are going on at uh, millisecond levels um, to keep the cell going, uh, the amount of ATP energy that the body produces inside the cells is something like equivalent to multiple times your entire weight, your entire body's weight, uh, because it's done so rapidly used and then rapidly remade on, a, on this continuous basis that um, it's, it's nearly unimaginable 
how much activity is going on inside your cells. Mm -hmm. Now, let me see if I get this right. So if I understand this correctly, mTOR and autophagy are kind of like a seesaw. So when mTOR is on, autophagy is off. When autophagy is on, mTOR is off. And what basically mTOR helps is like promotes muscle and, and growth in general, bone growth, etc. So it makes us big and strong and like all that. But the problem is that when we're doing that, we're also creating lots of uh, byproducts, lots of garbage. Uh, we also feed potentially cancerous cells and things like that. And then uh, conversely, when we have the mTOR off and autophagy on, then we stop growth, we stop muscle growth, etc. However, then we refocus on processing that inter or in intercellular garbage uh, with those garbage trucks that you're talking about, and we basically repair and clean up house, if you will. That's generally correct. Um, I I um, refer to this as a switch, but I describe it more as a dimmer switch because at least in most cells, uh, autophagy is never truly turned completely off and mTOR is never uh, completely turned off. And um, they're regulated up and down in opposition to each other. So as mTOR goes up, autophagy goes down and vice versa. Um, so these are called constitutive uh, complexes, and meaning that they're always on, but the level at which they're on varies greatly. And what I started realizing around 2013, when I was really doing this deep dive into calorie restriction and fasting and the ketogenic diet, etc., um, was that this way that modern people were eating, and modern I mean like uh, from the 1850s forward, um, was completely in opposition to the way in which humans and org other organisms had um, been living and eating uh, for billions of years. So this idea that, um, you know, essentially we can just have food around the clock, we have, you know, refrigerators and cupboards, and they're full of, of um not only highly nutritious, but, but high caloric and, and high energy uh, foods, um, that these just simply weren't available um, for 99% of human history. And that what we saw from the 1850s, early 1900s forward, in terms of increasing risks of cancer, diabetes, heart disease, uh, Alzheimer's, etc., and this has been very well documented that, you know, the rates per capita were going up, you know, tremendously at this, at this time, uh, parallels the rates of consumption of refined flour and sugar and our general ability to have, you know, these mega calorie um, diets that, you know, were just previously unknown. Yeah, uh, and and so perhaps now is the time to to start digging a little deeper into the subject matter of your book. So the title is the switch we just discussed, but then you say, ignite your metabolism with three topics: intermittent fasting, protein cycling, and keto. So let's break it into three parts. Let's start with intermittent fasting. Why fasting? So um, I use the term intermittent fasting to 
um, describe mostly what's also called time-restricted eating. And the reason for discussing that and for making it one of the main topics is that there's a great deal of literature um, to support the idea that if you go to bed full with your glycogen stores, that's, that's the glucose that's primarily stored in your muscle cells and your liver, um, if those are full uh, and you're still at, the, you know, at bedtime digesting even more food um, that you just ate at 9 or 10 o'clock at, at night, um, the chances that you are going to deplete those glycogen stores overnight and go into at least a mild form of autophagy um, before you have breakfast are minimal. And what you find is that when um, you restrict the period at which you eat to eight hours or less, um, that you see blood sugar levels going down so that fasting blood sugar is uh, much lower than otherwise. And this is a good indication that you have used up these glycogen stores and that um, you have a much higher potential for turning on autophagy overnight. Um, so um, I discuss this in the book. I discuss the different uh, ways that you can reduce this. I, I personally have gone to a four-hour uh, window, but you know I'm kind of a workaholic, so that also <laughs> plays out really well to just my lifestyle of you know working around the clock and just spending a certain amount of time uh, consuming you know the couple thousand calories I need to you know do my work and exercise um, every day. But I have you know as a result. Um, an 18 to 20 hour period of so-called fasting um, during which, you know, I'm burning through the glycogen stores and I can turn down mTOR and turn up autophagy on a daily basis. Now, there's also something called prolonged fasting and that can run from several days to years. Um, I mean, literally individuals that are have been tremendously overweight have done like a year's worth of um, nonstop water fasting um, under, of course, doctor's supervision uh, because we carry around a tremendous amount of caloric energy reserved as, as fat. And, our, and this, is, this is how humans evolved. This is how most mammals uh, evolved is, again, to go through um, – nutrient-deprived periods, whether it's uh, Ice Age winters or drought uh, in other parts of the planet where you have two or three months of drought every year, um, we had to be able to store more than just the day's worth or half day's worth of energy uh, that we can store in glucose terms, uh, and we do that in the form of fat. And oddly enough, and I didn't realize this until I was maybe a year or so into studying autophagy and mTOR, is that when, when all of these switches are in the uh, growth stage, um, your hormones are also turned on in such a way that we're primarily geared to burn glucose. And we're in what's called a fat-saving mode because... Uh, Again, historically, for 99% of human history, um, high-energy carbohydrates 
were not readily available. So whenever you came upon them, the bodies um, uh, basically evolved to make the best use of it possible, to, to um, uh, burn it so that you could put on more um, body fat. Uh, and, you know, historically this happened seasonally. So, you know, summer and fall were the times when berries and honey and, and all this stuff would have been available and um, humans would have had at least some um, high energy carbohydrates uh, followed by, you know, a period of deprivation, uh, winter, where, you know, these high energy foods would not be as available. And you may even get stuck in your, your cave or your, your, um, your home or whatever, uh, waiting for, you know, the 10 feet of snow outside your, your, your place to, to melt so that you could, you know, go get more food. So, um, there's, um, Evidence that that you know a 150 pound male um, in uh, good BMI, good health, carries about 880 kilocalories worth of glucose around in their body at any one time, but about 135,000 calories of uh, fat. So you can see the difference of you know if you had to survive a period of deprivation, you'd really be relying on your fat, and you'd need to be burning fat. But if your glycogen levels are full all the time and your body is still saying, well, let's save fat for that time when we're not going to have um, these high energy carbohydrates, but that time never occurs, then people primarily just keep storing and storing and storing fat and never burning it. So I didn't really realize this um, going into it from a longevity and health perspective, that it was also very um, significantly tied into weight loss as well. Absolutely. Now let's. So I, I completely accept the science behind uh, intermittent fasting and fasting in general. Um, there's two issues, however. One is having the personal discipline to actually do it, because not everyone is so amazingly disciplined like you are, and so moderate in their kind of behavior and, and, and their food cravings and stuff like that as you are. And secondly, what's the best way to implement it in terms of uh, duration and also allocation of the time within the, the 24 hour period? So let's take all those three issues one by one here. So personally, I, you know, struggle a little bit with that, even though I get it logically. Uh, and, you know, currently me and my wife, we wake up every day around between five and six. We have breakfast and we have dinner around five o'clock. So we have about a 12 hour period where we kind of fast. And I've been trying to uh, increase it to about maybe 14, 16 hours. And and even uh, yesterday, I, I was like telling my wife, well, in honor of James, I'm going to skip dinner tonight. And I couldn't do it. And I and. There, like, you know, I, I I went to swim. I swim between one and two kilometers, usually depending on how I feel and a bunch of other factors. So I swam about a kilometer. I came home, was intending to skip dinner, and I really, really struggled with it. And so now, so, so I ate. Now, the good news within the bad news is that in the past, I would have had, like years ago, before I went vegan, I would have had pizza or some other junk. Last night, I had four apples with peanut butter for dinner. 
So that that's kind of an improvement, you know, even now when I binge and that's kind of like binging now because like when I binge, I binge on apples with peanut butter. It's not so bad, but still I was unable after, especially after swimming, I was unable to not eat at all. And I think part of it is psychological because you see when I was growing up, uh, my mom died when I was 13. My dad then started drinking and started not showing up at home for long periods of time, sometimes days, sometimes weeks. And there were periods when I wouldn't be able to eat for, let's say, two or three days. So then I'll be kind of starved a little bit. And then when I had the chance to eat, I would overeat and overstuff myself. And I think I've developed since then this kind of thing, which you're describing, how in the past, you know, we naturally tend to go with that rhythm where we would eat and then we would not eat for a period of time. But I now struggle with this because I have this psychological issue where I have to eat every time I have food because I just like somewhere I know I, I'm, I'm not going to have a problem opening the fridge later on. But somewhere psychologically deep down, it's like this. Oh, you have to eat. You have to eat, you know. So I'm struggling with this. <laughs> yeah, well, um, uh, again, this is a this is a complex area and I want to get into this. Um I, I will go back for a second, though, and talk about the book as a whole, because this, this is something that I've heard from a few people um, that have, you know, wrote to me um, saying, uh, I really enjoy the book. And I really think that, you know, you did a great job with the science, but I find this really super difficult to implement. And um, what I have to say is that I sort of wrote this for the purity of what would be the ideal or optimal lifestyle to try to make it to a hundred. Um, and I know that, you know, this is going to be really difficult. Um, uh, and it took me a decade, um, because, um, when I lived in Hawaii, um, um, uh, John McGoogle, uh, John McDougall was my uh, personal physician, um, and he got me into being first a, v a vegetarian and later a vegan. And um, this was before the glycemic index, you know, was even out, let alone uh, popularized. So um, I really high energy carbohydrates, um, and you know, when you're young. 20s, 30s, even early 40s, um, most of this stuff doesn't bother you. And um, I was always relatively thin. So, you know, I wasn't worried about weight. Um, so I would eat, you know, tons of bagels and pasta and, <laughs> you know, really high carbohydrate foods. And I basically uh, sort of woke up one day as a pre diabetic. And wow. um, it, took me about 10 years to really kind of get on top of that and to figure out that that was the problem. Um, and um, one of the interesting things that we've learned studying the gut microbiota over the last uh, decade is that um, a significant portion of the um, dopamine uh, that your body uh, makes comes from your gut bacteria and your gut bacteria is a product 
not only of what you were born with and what you're exposed to, but also what you put in your mouth. So if you stop consuming dairy products completely, your lactobacillus uh, bacteria that break down uh, dairy products goes away. Like the proportion will completely change. If you eat a uh, carnivore diet, then the bacteria that um, break down uh, carbohydrates will greatly diminish. And you can see that, that um, over time, you can vastly change your gut bacteria. What we find with the gut bacteria that specifically likes high energy carbohydrates is that they tend to produce a lot of dopamine whenever you consume high energy carbohydrates. So basically, your gut bacteria is rewarding your brain for an activity that you engage in, putting pasta or bagels or whatever um, down your mouth. So um, it's, it's very much sort of like this self-reinforcing cycle, um, not necessarily coming from your intention as much as you're, you're pleasing your little microbiota um, gut bacteria uh, as much as you are pleasing yourself. And when people refer to comfort foods, you know, so you have a stressful day at work or something, Pizza. you know, is bothering you, um, they tend to eat really high energy carbohydrates and they feel better. And part of that is just anytime they eat um, ice cream or, or, um, you know, other, any insulin raising, you know, high, high energy carbohydrate, um, they're going to get a dopamine, um, uh, release and it's going to make them, you know, feel better. So, um, unfortunately that doesn't necessarily coincide with, with, uh, physical health. I get that. I get that. But how do you do that? And like when you're a cyclist, I'm I'm a bit of a cyclist, not not so much as before. But now in the winter, I, I tend to swim somewhere between one and two kilometers, maybe five times a week, in addition to doing yoga and some weight weightlifting exercises. But in the summer and when the weather is better, I do at least between 30 and 50 on average kilometers of biking and sometimes 80 to 100. And cycling food is generally high carb like pasta, uh, pasta is like a typical cycling food or white rice, which I avoid. Um, but but also even like, you know, I was uh, in a period last summer, I think, I think, or the summer before, actually, I was in a bit of ketosis. And I know that because I did my uh, blood and urine tests and, and I had ketones in my urine. Uh, and I was really struggling on the bike. I could not push, I couldn't do it, you know. So, so my concern is that, okay, if I'm actually hungry uh, like that, and if I'm following this, first, I can't actually bike the 50K that I'm biking usually with my group. I fall behind. I can't keep up with the guys. And, and secondly, uh, if after I've done the workout, whether swimming last night or biking in the summer, it's really hard for me not to eat afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can totally appreciate this. Um, there are a growing number of, uh, endurance athletes, um, in many sports that are going ketogenic and, um, uh, I I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, Peter Atia. Um, uh, he's done a number of, um, 
uh, write-ups and I believe um, some podcasts regarding his own experiences doing uh, ketogenesis. And uh, I think he even did a, a Pikes Peak, uh, you know, bicycle run um, uh, entirely on a ketogenic diet. And um, part of the ability to, to build up this kind of um, uh, burning fat um, endurance ability is to uh, go in and out of the ketogenic diet uh, more regularly so that your body can very quickly switch from uh, carbohydrate burning to fat burning and do it essentially in the background where you don't go through a, uh, a stage where you hit the wall, as they say. And almost uh, no one that I know that does ketogenesis and does endurance sports training their body to burn uh, fat so readily that when they burn through their glucose, um, they just have already, their body's already switched to burning fat and just keeps going without this, um, you know, significant drop in blood sugar, uh, you know, while the body essentially waits for you to put one more Gatorade or one more um, high, ener high energy, you know, um, uh, sports bar, you know, uh, into you. So um, I'm a big fan of the ketogenic diet. Um, I tell people that you don't have to just focus on um, animal fats. Uh, I was a, a ketogenic uh, vegan uh, for three to four years, um, and I found it to actually be pretty easy to do. Um, and then the more I switched back and forth, uh, the more quickly my body would would switch. And what I found was that um, for about a year, I was doing um, weekend uh, prolonged fast. So I was only eating four hours a day, and I would have my last four-hour uh, meal, let's say by two o'clock on Saturday, and I wouldn't have my next meal until two o'clock on, on Monday. So it would be a 48-hour fast, even though I was only actually skipping one day's meal. Um, but just the nature of how I was eating, it worked out to be 48 hours. And I wouldn't feel it at all. I wouldn't be hungry that night. I wouldn't be hungry all day Sunday. And usually by Monday, the reason I would say, you know, this worked fine, I'm going back to eating, is because I am relatively thin and I don't want to break down muscle, which, you know, when you go into a prolonged fast, your body will start breaking down uh, muscle to make more uh, glucose. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, it, it really depends on where you are to begin with as to whether prolonged fasts are, are required or not. But, you know, I'm but it's, a way of, it's a way of getting the switch to turn back and forth very rapidly and almost painlessly. Yeah, and I'm going to come back to keto in the latter part of our conversation here because that's the part where I need the most convincing. And also we need to differentiate between keto as it's in the public discourse, meaning butter and bacon and, you know, whatever meats you want. And that's what keto is in the popular thing. And the keto in your sense, which is vegan keto, which is very different keto. 
but we're going to talk that in the last part. So we're still talking in the fasting here. So so let's say you got me into the fasting science, convinced 100%. I'm going to work on improving my self-discipline and, and make that happen. Now let's talk about the duration and the allocation. And here's where I need also a little bit more convincing. So I watched a number of studies uh, that Dr. Uh, Gregor was quoting on nutritionfacts.org comparing uh, people who skip breakfast versus people who skip dinner. Now, I know that you recommend people and the way you do it, which is very impressive, is like you skip breakfast um, and, and you finish basically all your food within a four-year window. Four hours, yep. According to Dr. Gregor's studies, um, it was actually better to do, let's say, if you want to do really a 16-hour window, so not quite as ambitious as, as your 20-hour window of fasting, but let's say just 16 for people like me who are moving from 12 to 16, so it's not so hard. Then, according to his data and studies, it's actually better to skip the dinner as opposed to skipping the breakfast because, uh, and it had to do with the circadian rhythms, yeah, so for example, it's it's if you have a six o'clock, uh, let's say breakfast, and then you have like a, uh, I don't know, a twelve noon lunch, and then that's it, basically. Uh, uh, and the reason for that was that the circadian rhythm, the fact that you actually end up burning a lot more calories when you eat it earlier during the day, and a number of other factors versus let's say having just lunch and then an early dinner, the way you do it, for example. Are you aware of that? And what's your take on these? Oh, yeah, I, I'm aware of it. And um, I think that that uh, um, keeping your uh, window to eight hours, um, there was a paper that came out uh, very early this year uh, from Ocampo, I believe. So it was uh, supported by the NIH, um, specifically on time-restricted dieting, and they used an eight-hour window. Um, um, and if you're concluding your dinner by 6 or 7 p.m. and you're not consuming anything after that except, you know, uh, beverages, tea, etc., cetera, uh, but, but basically no-calorie-type um, beverage, uh, I think you're going to wake up uh, in the morning with a fairly low blood sugar. And that's, that's really the, the um, objective here, is to have burned through your blood sugar, um, your glycogen stores um, overnight. Um, you, you, you would want to be in your 80s or 70s um, when, when you wake up. And if you are able to do that and have uh, an evening meal, then I think that's great. Personally, um, probably, again, because of years of insulin insensitivity and um, pre-diabetes, uh, I have to close down my wheat, my um, uh, evening eating much earlier in order to be at that level of 80s or 70s or 80s uh, blood sugar-wise in the morning. If I have a meal, you know, at seven or eight o'clock. Um, I'm much more likely to be in the mid to high 90s. Uh, I'm with you 100%. But, but why not have like a breakfast and lunch and cut it off at lunch? Why have sort of like late breakfast, lunch, and then early I, dinner? Yeah, I don't, I don't 
think there's a huge um, difference, at least that we've seen in um, any kind of studies. And, and, it, and again, it sort of depends on what markers you're looking for. So, you know, some people are, are specifically looking at things like IGF-1 and insulin levels. Uh, you can't directly measure autophagy very easily without an electron microscope or, uh, you know, taking blood samples and looking at the gene expression levels inside cells. So it's not something you can just like... How about the rate of burning of calories? Is that not a sign of autophagy that when you burn more calories, uh, autophagy would be on? Um, certainly, um, one way of inhibiting mTOR is to reduce your ATP levels. And there's a upstream switch called AMPK, which essentially monitors the amount of um, ADB to ATP in the cells. And if your ATP levels, your energy levels are low, it basically tells the cell, stop dividing, stop spending so much energy on making um, proteins, and again, hunker down by turning on autophagy and trying to replenish some of these supplies. Um, so um, I think that's an indirect measurement, uh, and you can because certainly Because it's the best that I've seen so far, and Dr. Greger was quoting studies of lunch and dinner versus breakfast and lunch, same calorie, same exact food, same people and it turns out that the people who just had the breakfast and lunch burned higher percentage by i forget 25 percent maybe higher rate of burning rate than people who just had uh, lunch and dinner and it had to do with the circadian rhythm and the fact that the body naturally presumes that if you eat in the morning you would have a whole day to burn it whereas if you eat it at night you're not going to burn it therefore you're going to store more of it well, um, I, I've, I've seen that. I think it's compelling. Um, I don't know that it's the, you know, only answer here, though. And, and that's sort of how this has to go, is that for most people, they're going to have, have to decide whether or not um, they're capable of time restricting their diet and which way they want to skew it. I personally have always found that it's very easy to skip breakfast and um, you know, it's, uh, as long as I'm not having dairy in my, in my coffee and actually two colleagues, um, one scientist and, and, um, one person who was working on the book with me, um, found that, uh, just a little bit of dairy in their coffee, uh, was actually throwing off, uh, their ability to, uh, go into ketogenesis, their ability to lose weight, etc. And, and again, it's the fact that, Dairy proteins, in particular leucine, um, have the ability to turn on mTOR regardless of almost anything else you're doing. Uh, and, uh, you know, David Sabatini um, really is the one who elucid elucidated this. It's been discussed um, in, you know, various places, but, but uh, I find this to be very compelling. And in fact, when I want to turn on mTOR, I specifically look at leucine-rich foods, whey protein, uh, even uh, HMB, which is a metabolite of leucine, which bodybuilders have found uh, and seems to, at lower doses than leucine, work remarkably well at turning on uh, muscle growth, cell proliferation like stem cells, uh, uh, immune cells, etc. So when you want 
to keep mTOR turned on, which, which is obviously a really important part of living. Um, uh, and doing this at, at the right time, you know, in cycling, uh, I think, you know, dairy is great. But, but otherwise, uh, if you want to be doing the reverse and you, you know, you rarely turn on autophagy and you want to learn how to turn it on, then you have to do some form of time-restricted dieting. And if uh, you really just don't want to skip breakfast uh, and have a breakfast and lunch, uh, I think, you know, there's good evidence. Uh, Gregor's uh, certainly covered this in some of his videos that, that this is a, a beneficial strategy. Right. And, and speaking of that, by the way, I want to say uh, here that, you know, as uh, one thing that I love in your book is uh, on page 107, which you say, if I had to say which dietary, which dietary pattern is the most problematic, I'd call out the overconsumption of both dairy products and animal protein. You might think I'd name sugar and bad fats and salt, but when you think about it, a lot of excess sugar, fat, and salt ride along with meals heavy in processed animal proteins and dairy products. Just think of the classic American fare of a cheeseburger with fly, fries and a milkshake. You know, years before, I would buy myself a pizza and, and eat the pizza with milk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I well, I... I, I've done the exact same thing and, you know, double the, cheese pizza with milk. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you're having a, uh, a big Mac or, or something similar, you know, you're having a white bun bread, um, you know, high carbohydrate, uh, uh, product along with both dairy and meat, um, and, you know, French fries. So, you know, very, fast digestible, high energy carbohydrates, along with, with sufficient proteins. When I started reading um, um, longitudinal studies, and they were talking about people who self-profess uh, to be uh, sort of uh, heavy meat eaters. Now, this wasn't looking at a group of, of so-called carnivore diet people. This was just like uh, typical Americans, and they would split them up between like primarily um, uh, vegetable, um, vegans, vegetable, uh, vegetarians, uh, meat eaters, etc. One of the things that they actually found, and it, it took a lot of digging to, to find this in the, in the paperwork, was that people who say that they eat the most amount of meat actually eat more carbohydrates than the people who say they eat mostly carbohydrates. And, and part of it has to do with the people who were eating the most meats were also just eating the most calories of every kind, every class of food. Yeah. So um, I think this is really sort of the dangerous part of the American diet or the Western diet, because you see this in the UK and elsewhere. Um, and you see obesity rates skyrocketing in the UK and, and elsewhere as well, um, that just eating more of everything is really detrimental. And the combination of eating high fatty foods and high energy carbohydrates is probably the worst possible scenario. Uh, I agree completely with you, James, but I'm afraid we're geeking too much here only, only on the first third of your amazing book. So, so let's just move on here. I'll try to keep up the pace because I know your time is very valuable and you might have to call time out on me. So 
Let's talk about protein cycling, which is the next part of your book. So we, we covered here a little bit about fasting. I believe the science. It's a matter of all of us having the personal discipline to uh, to actually make it happen and then perhaps experiment and read studies about the best possible duration and allocation within our 24 hour hour day. So that's that. The first third. The second third is protein cycling. Tell us what protein, protein cycling is all about and why we should be doing that. Uh, so when I started working on this in 2013, and I, I had written about 80,000 words worth of notes from the 2,000 plus papers on calorie restriction, IF, ketogenic diet, etc. Um, there, there wasn't any other popular literature. Uh, and in the intervening years, um, I saw other people also um, starting to write about autophagy, but everyone was presenting it as a, um, a solution, meaning um, you should do this. And so I had people saying, oh, hey, uh, I know that you're a big fan of turning down mTOR and turning up autophagy. So here's what I've been doing. You know, I've, I've gone on a ketogenic diet and I'm taking these autophagy inducer uh, nutrients, um, AMPK activators that turn down mTOR, et cetera, or metformin. And they said, you know, yeah, I've been doing this for like several years. And my response was, um, uh, you've probably seen weight loss. And they, almost always say yes. And I'd say, have you also seen a loss in uh, muscle mass? And the answer in everybody who was over like 55 was, well, yes, yes. Um, my muscles are a lot smaller. And, and I saw this in, in, in myself as well. And I would say, when was the last time you had a CBC, a complete blood count, and looked at your immune cells? And for some of them, um, who had taken this uh, test uh, fairly recently, and it's a really super inexpensive test. I recommend getting it, you know, maybe four times a year at, at, at best. Um, it'll give you a really good perspective as to where your uh, lymphocytes, neutrophils, and just general white blood cell counts are. And for many of these people, they were reaching the very lowest portion of the normal uh, range or going below that. And so what I was explaining was, um, look, you can't go to the opposite extreme of the American diet and keep mTOR always suppressed and autophagy always on because what you're going to end up with is muscle wasting, a much uh, lower level of um, uh, stem cells replacing uh, lost muscle and cartilage and other things like that. And also um, your immune cells won't proliferate the way they should as well because mTOR controls the growth of all these cells. Um, so you In other really words, need... we cannot sustain autoph autophagy indefinitely on an ongoing basis. Correct, correct. Now, it is possible to sort of adopt a autophagy-inducing diet and then force mTOR on. So, so for example, if I wanted to stay on a vegan ketogenic diet, which would be very, um, that would 
uh, inhibit mTOR quite a lot, just normally, uh, without doing fasting, just staying on a, on a uh, vegan ketogenic diet. Um, if I wanted to turn on mTOR, then I could just simply supplement that with some whey protein or HMB uh, or some straight branch chain amino acid, you know, tablets, et cetera. Uh, but I don't think that in the long run, um, sort of manipulating this uh, switch nutraceuticals is really probably the best idea. And certainly there's less evidence. Um, and one of the, we haven't talked about this really, but these groups that I discuss in the, in the book have been studied for decades. So the Okinawans, um, the um, Loma Linda vegans, in fact, some of the first longitudinal studies in the world were done on Loma Linda uh, vegetarian and vegans um, because of one of their Seventh-day Adventist members who went to Harvard uh, Medical School. And um, um, also these Mount Athos monks have been around for uh, 1,500 years or so and have followed very similar uh, lifestyle practices that entire time. Um, they're not a hereditary group. It's, it's uh, you know, people join the order and go to Mount Athos and become um, monks there. So it's a heterogeneic uh, group of people. And yet you still find in all of the, all three of these groups, much lower levels of cancer, Alzheimer's, heart disease, and diabetes than you do from the general populations in which they live. Um, and so these are what you could consider to be long-term, large clinical trials that have been going on voluntarily by groups of people. And um, for the most part, they give us a pattern. And this pattern is a group of people that regularly turn down mTOR and turn up autophagy, don't do it excessively, and um, uh, do so primarily by reducing their uh, animal protein and um, uh, dairy uh, over the course of the year. So, you know, for the Mount Athos monks, it's because they have all these religious holidays in which meat and dairy are, are forbidden. And for, you know, the Okinawans, it's because that's not part of their culture. They eat a lot of fish. Um, but even when you say they eat a lot of fish, it's like, four ounces a week. So, you know, they're, they're using meat primarily as a condiment to flavor things in broths, and, yeah. you know, ground up a little bit on, on uh, you know, dishes and things like that. But they're not, they're not having uh, cheeseburgers and, and um, wings and, and uh, pizza all in one meal, which I've That's done myself European and seen American many people. That's the difference. Do between a lot and a lot. So a lot of coffee in Europe may mean two or three espressos, but a lot of coffee in North America may mean 20 ounces of coffee, you know, and the same applies to large size in Europe is like a medium size in North America. And the same applies to food. What we would call here a normal plate of food in North America is a very large plate of food in Europe, generally speaking. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and, and that makes discussions a little problematic um, when you talk about, you know, um, that the Okinawans eat a lot of fish. Um, and again, it, it also varies by um, the age of the people. 
Um, so um, the American military established uh, military bases after World War II. Uh, they brought with them uh, grocery stores and uh, fast, fast food, food all these things. And basically, um, the younger population sort of said, you know, I'd rather follow that lifestyle than the traditional Okinawan, you know, only eat until you're 80% full uh, style. Um, and so um, you find that the younger Okinawans now have just about the same health risks as other Japanese, and they're no longer sort of a protected society, protected health-wise, because they were really kind of Im impoverished um, for a long time. They primarily, um, you know, vegetables from their own uh, gardens and a small amount of fish. So, um, And when we know, talk about a small amount of fish, we're talking 1% of their diet comes from fish. That's a small amount correct. of fish, just to be clear, because yeah. when people say small amount, they think 20, 30, 40%. No, guys, not 30%, not 25, 1%. I, I, I totally agree. And I have people saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to try and adopt um, some of the lifestyle patterns. And is it okay to have a couple of four ounce pieces of meat because that's not, not very much meat. You know, they're, they're saying it's not very much meat. And I'm saying, well, that's actually the amount that, uh, that an Okinawan would eat in two weeks. And, um, you know, and, and obviously the Loma Linda vegans aren't having at all period. Um, you know, they're getting their, their protein primarily from legumes and nuts. Um, so I, I, I think this, is one of the main reasons why I thought writing this book was a good idea was to go through and describe all of this and, and to actually break down um, where the calories come from in an Okinawan diet, for example, and to talk about um, the way that the Mount Athos monks fast, what it involves. And, you know, they don't actually go on water fast 180 days of the year. They do They do something that they call fasting, and it's part of their Eastern Orthodox religion, but it's basically a more like a Walter Longo reduced calorie um, fasting, where they're getting 600 to 900 calories, no meat or dairy, um, no wine, um, and uh, you know they do that repeatedly day after day during these religious uh, fasts that take up about half the year. You know, I'm very familiar with, with this because by birth I'm Bulgarian, which is Orthodox Christian, so the culture is very, very, like 99% maybe a, like the Greek Orthodox. It's the same calendar. My grandmother used to follow that Eastern Orthodox religious ca calendar religiously, so she would always fast and do all the things as per the the holy books and, and the the church recommendations, which is basically following that monk lifestyle so i would always watch her when i was a kid um so i i'm very familiar with that but uh, let's just be clear here so by protein cycling you mean the fact that people don't eat a lot of protein in their diet is that not correct no um so the cycling really means the cycle the switch more than protein right right sorry i apologize yeah yeah, yeah. And, so and it's on and off yeah exactly yeah yes go ahead yes. explain so that the to idea us is protein, that yeah Uh, I'm sorry. So because mTOR is affected so dramatically with um, certain 
types of proteins, specifically these branch chain amino acids and, and primarily more than anything else, leucine, you can literally just trigger it by, um, by consuming more uh, dairy or whey protein or just you know, taking branch chain amino acid uh, tablets, for example. And the idea behind this protein cycling is that for a while you upregulate the amount of protein, specifically these branch chain amino acids that you're consuming, so that you seeing your lost muscles, your lost stem cells, your uh, boosting your immune system, etc. And um, then you cycle down. And I believe from the reading I did, and I really deeply into like paleolithic, um, we're, we're, we're so lucky that there are researchers that have dedicated their life to studying how um, humans have um, uh, consumed uh, nutritionally, you know, over the millennia. And I think that it's important to follow this advice that, that humans evolved in a certain way. We underwent these long-term famines on a regular basis. And um, even for um, people of North, North, Northern European descent, you know, um, fairly recently in the history of man, we went through a 20,000-year uh, ice age or glacial age in Northern Europe. And times were really tough. And it, as, it, as it turns out, the very last of the Neanderthals were on the absolute furthest point uh, south in Europe that you could get, which is Gibraltar. And, you know, the, the warmest possible place they could be and the place where they would have the most seafood available to them, and they still died out. So um, uh, it, was, it was definitely a very rough time. You see all these uh, gigantic mammals, uh, the woolly rhino from, from the UK, giant sloths, uh, mastodons, they all went extinct during this period of time when things were pretty tough and humans were smart enough to figure out how to kill them. So, um, you know, I believe from what I've, what I've read that humans prob probably were in the year and they were uh, able to have these high energy carbohydrates only a small portion of the year. And that's when they really uh, rebuilt their muscles, built up their immune system and put on weight before the coming winter um, was, you know, during this uh, late summer, early fall, you know, time period. And I think that given our history of evolution, um, some sort of ratio uh, where we're in ketogenesis just more than we're out of it, uh, or uh, we're turning on the switch um, and turning up mTOR less than we're turning uh, up autophagy is probably the healthier choice. And again, this just really hasn't been explored very much in humans. Most of the interventional diets are very short-term, three months, six months, etc. So other than these groups like the Mount Athos monks, the Okinawans, and the Loma Linda vegans that have been followed for decades to get good uh, dietary information, other than looking at what does the standard American diet do, and we've seen the results of that, it's devastating. It's obesity, it's, it's increases in heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, et cetera. 
Well, so, okay, so we covered intermittent fasting, protein cycling, and now we're going into keto kind of. So this is where I'm kind of struggling. So, so, so let me share with you uh, sort of some, some concerns or doubts that I have and the reasons for that. So let me start by general doubts about keto and then we're going to go into, well, let's start the other way. Let's start first. When you speak of keto, your keto is a vegan keto. So that's uh, very different than the keto that we touched about, like where you can eat all the butter and all the, the bacon and all that stuff, cheesecake, etc. that you want. So tell us what you mean by keto and vegan keto. So um, when I talk about the ketogenic diet, I'm, I'm really talking about sort of the uh, standard one that you would read about uh, on the web, which is basically that 65 or more percent of your calories come from fatty acids and that your carbohydrates are restricted. Uh, in most people, it turns out to be 35 or fewer grams of carbohydrates a day, um, and they can stay in this ketogenic um, state. Uh, I personally um, am not convinced that saturated fats are good for you. Uh, certainly in my own genotype, uh, there's a uh, almost in lock step of saturated fats with LDL cholesterol and um, very low density particles, meaning uh, the, the worst type of LDL cholesterol. So if I increase my saturated fats, which you can do even on a vegan diet by consuming, for example, uh, saturated fats like coconut oil. I had that uh, problem. I'll tell you in a second. Uh, so when I first... Um, joined uh, my roommate in trying this uh, ketogenic diet, uh, we both consumed a lot of uh, coconut oil. And because I regularly test my blood, I went from what then was my normal um, LDL of about uh, uh, 210 to 220 to 400 in one month. And uh, had I gone to you know a physician, they would have thrown me on, you know, multiple statins, statins that are really yeah. high doses and, you know, uh, told me to stop whatever it is I'm doing and, you know, go back to my previous uh, dietary habit. But what I did, because, you know, I realized that my diet had only changed in a very small uh, number of respects. So I, I immediately cut out the saturated fats and stuck to a high fat ketogenic diet but I switched to monounsaturated fats. So uh, olive oil, um, avocado oil, almond oil, et cetera. And so I was still consuming 85, uh, sorry, 65% uh, or more of my calories from fats. And instead of seeing my LDL cholesterol return to uh, normal for me, you know, 210 to 220, it actually went down to 180. Um, and that was total cholesterol, not LDLC. Um, so an amazing drop by just reducing all my saturated fats. Now, I believe this is a um, PPAR uh, variant that only 20% or less of the population have. Um, so I'm not saying that if you eat saturated fat, you're going to have really high LDL cholesterol and really small particles. Um, but I do think that if you don't keep track of this sort of thing and you decide to go on a high saturated fat diet, you should really check this out and you should be careful 
And again, some people will say saturated fats aren't a problem, cholesterol isn't a problem, it's, it's diabetes that's a problem. And I think diabetes is definitely um, uh, injurious to uh, your blood vessels. It makes it, uh, creates these AGEs, advanced glycation end products, that make your arteries hard, so to speak, by glycating them. Um, which can also lead to atherosclerosis. Um, but I think there isn't sufficient evidence to show that um, cholesterol is just something you can completely write off. Uh, and I know that there are, there are papers that seem to indicate that it doesn't cause a problem. These are relatively short-term um, papers, uh, but there are significantly larger numbers of studies that do show that, you know, the correlation between um, LDL cholesterol in particular and these small particles and um, uh, heart disease is um, undeniable. So yeah. until we, until we really tease that out, I'd rather be safe. And uh, when I do my own personal ketogenic diet, which, which I, again, cycle through on an annual basis, um, that I do mine as a vegan. And I primarily focus on these monounsaturated uh, fats. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, so my, my, my personal experience was that, that I, I went vegan, and one of the reasons, there were many reasons, ethical, practical, medical, personal reasons, climate reasons, even if you will. But the the result was that in my first three to six months my cholesterol exploded and mind you from before that i'm bulgarian so i consumed a lot like ridiculous amounts of cheese ridiculous amounts of butter all those things and suddenly go vegan and the result was instead of it going down it went up and i was utterly shocked and it took me six months to figure out. And basically what happened is I replaced my traditional butter and, you know, I stopped eating bacon, of course, and all of that. But I started cooking with coconut oil and started putting it in my shakes because there was it's all this marketing how good coconut oil is for you. And as I said, my triglycerides went to like something like 2.78. Um, my LDL exploded. Like it was just the worst I've ever tested. The moment I actually completely remove coconut oil out of the picture, like completely, I don't touch it now. Actually, my triglycerides last time tested 1.71. Um, and uh, my my cholesterol is is now in in the it's not in the perfect range, but it's getting close to it. Uh, and and uh, generally, uh, I'm 44 now. I've never had better blood picture since I've had my tests for the last 15 years here. So so for me personally, coconut oil is absolutely no no, and it literally destroyed me almost like in terms of health. Now, Dr. Gregor, for example, says that that's not necessarily only 20% of the people, but he actually says many studies that show that you know. There's most people would have the same effect as it has on me. And, and it makes sense from evolutionary biology point of view, because the reality is most of us never ate coconuts uh, in our ancestors, and especially in high concentrated fatty form like coconut oil, they couldn't get that. Right? So that totally makes sense to me. Now, but let's switch 
generally back to the keto diet because here's the thing all those examples that you're giving the lima loma vegans the the greek orthodox priests at mount atnos uh, also by the way the greeks in an island called ikaria which also have maybe even higher longevity than the those in mount athos there's a community in puerto rico of centenarians there's a community in mexico there's the okinawans and correct me if i'm wrong because you're much more educated in this of course all of them are not keto but they're high carb diet cultures are they not right so how do we square that with your keto keto push um so let's let's cover that latter topic uh first um so you know uh, for a decade or so i was um started this super centenarian research project with george church i went around the world met about right, by the way people. let me just interrupt you here for a second and say james was the 12th person on the planet who had his full genome uh, decoded, and Dr. George Church was reading the interpretation of his genes. That's how the two of them met. And and then James went on to start a project of his own, which was basically to collect DNA samples of super centenarian, the youngest of whom was 106 years old. I should have started with that because that's amazing bragging rights and, and very important information. And you probably have one of the largest databases, if not the largest that I know of anyway. So, so this is sort of like in terms of credibility be behind your work and, and, and what you've done and what your interests are. So now go ahead and say what you have to well, say. Well, I've been very interested in studying uh, people of exceptional longevity and health. And one of the things I found by actually meeting the supercentenarians in person rather than contacting them by mail and trying to get, you know, uh, blood draws from them arranged, you know, without ever going there personally, was that uh, by and large, uh, I met numerous people who were 107 to 111 years old that were still living on their own, um, uh, in some cases still driving their own vehicles, you know, at 109 years old. Uh, <laughs> one gentleman had driven his two-seater Mercedes from um, the Tucson area up to Denver, Colorado for his daughter's birthday. Um, so amazing people and um, gives you a whole new perspective on what it's like um, to, to get old. When you hear about at 99 years old, a guy went to a championship golf course and um, played two under par at 99 wow. years old, like wow. the amount of coordination, muscle strength, all this to, to yeah. do this at a, at a championship golf course is, is incredible. And, um, and so um, I really got interested in um, um, this concept of health oases or blue zones and uh, what was going on in these locations. And what I personally uh, found was that one remarkable thing that they all have in common is they're not cities that have fast food, um, lots of grocery stores, and traditionally, um, you're finding the residents of these locations are pretty much taking care of themselves. They're growing their own vegetables. Uh, in many cases, they're eating very low amounts of animal protein and dairy. Um, and some of the dairy that you know you'll you, you'll get mixed reports about this because they'll say, well, they 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 consume a lot of dairy, 
And then they'll say, it's almost all goat and, and uh, sheep. Yeah. You know, and uh, the, amount of, uh, the amount of leucine in cow's milk versus goats and, and uh, sheep is dramatically different. They are much more like human breast milk and yeah. far less like cow's milk than, um, than what we would find with, with uh, you know, the normal kind of dairy that you get here in America, which is all, you know, derived from cows. So um, I think that this lifestyle uh, takes place all over the world. And I certainly know that my grandparents and maybe your grandparents lived a completely different lifestyle than what we see people doing now. And uh, many of them that were fortunate um, to avoid, you know, death by war or, you know, uh, accidents and things like that made it into their mid to late 90s. Uh, of, tell me about part. that keto and, and why why are <laughs> they not higher higher carb cultures? Because it looks to me like the Greeks, the Japanese, they, they consume complex carbohydrates in the form of yams or sweet potatoes and stuff, but they're still primarily carbs, not keto. I, I completely agree. So 75%, 70-75% of their calories come from carbs. Yes. And, and um, so the evidence for a ketogenic diet comes from a couple different places. But the, the prime health, so in the proteins, and you cut down on the carbohydrates, which pretty much describes a you know, low carbohydrate diet is one way of saying a high fat, um, you know, diet, um, pretty much describes a ketogenic diet. So if you cut down on the proteins and particularly the high energy carbohydrates, you're going to turn down mTOR. So we know on the molecular basis that um, uh, having a ketogenic diet is very similar to being on a low calorie uh, diet, um, like the Okinawans, um, you're cutting your animal proteins uh, um, uh, not as much as the vegans, but, but definitely considerably less than the average population. But the most important reason I put this in the book was the fact that um, when you learn about the body's ability to burn glucose versus fat, and you learn that... Um, you can reteach your body how to do this by simply engaging in ketogenic diets from time to time. That's where I think um, this diet comes into play. And of course, um, 50% of all individuals in America over 65 years old are obese. 50%. Yeah. So uh, I believe that learning to do a ketogenic diet and to um, teach your body how to burn fat is a really important health aspect that you need to learn. And I think it's something that because, again, looking at my grandparents, who went to bed fairly early um, by modern standards. And woke who, up early uh, with the sunrise. Who woke up early as well. Uh, although, you know, they didn't always have like big breakfasts or, or that sort of thing. And certainly, you know, they weren't going to uh, a fast food change and, and chain and, or, or a restaurant and having, uh, you know, these massive pancake platters and blueberry uh, waffles and things like that with high fructose corn syrup. Um, so 
uh, with a glass of milk, <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, their diet, their lifestyle was really, really different. And they were active, you know, all day long. They were doing physical labor. I remember my grandmother's um, actually doing laundry, uh, not with a machine, but with a wash tub, um, you know, one of those um, metal corrugated uh, things that you rolled um, uh, clothes through to dry them. And, and, you know, we just wouldn't, wouldn't dream of being a normal part of their life anymore. Uh, and of course, <laughs> you know, uh, the sweeping, the, the getting down on your hands and knees and cleaning things like uh, I have a robot that does all that for me now, you know, like <laughs> uh, our lifestyles are just so very much different than that of just people that were born in the, you know, early 1900s. Yeah. Um, and if you go back a couple of hundred years uh, before this explosion of the diseases of civilization, um, you see like people's lives were uh, pretty much full of toil all day long. And uh, I know that, you know, when I have a long day of uh, uh, doing work, we had a windstorm that went through Gainesville recently. I spent like the whole day walking around this seven acre property that our laboratory is on, picking up uh, big, huge uh, limbs and uh, uh, cutting up tree trunks, you know, of trees that were downed. Um, I wanted to go to bed at seven o'clock at night, uh, you know, because, <laughs> you know, when you put in, you know, 12 hours of, of manual labor, and I think, you know, my, my um, fitness uh, app said that I'd walked about seven miles you know, back and forth across the property, dragging these limbs and stuff to a burn pile. Um, you realize like how much work people did before, you know, air conditioned uh, tractors and, and harvesters and things like that. And, and everything that was done. Uh, I you get know, that, just, James, but forgive me. I think we're going again a little sideways here. I apologize. That, that's fine. I I'm digress. Trying, I'm trying to understand why, why not just mimic the lifestyle of the Mount Athos monks or the Okinawans or the, the guy, the Greeks in, on the island of Icaria or the islands on Sardinia who all eat high carb diets? 70, 75% of their diet is high carb. And we know they're the longest living people. So my question is, we have the living examples in front of us. They eat high carbs. Why should we eat low carbs? That's what I'm trying to figure out for myself. I'm, I'm saying that I think that there's a place in people's diets. And certainly, depending on where your starting point is, if you have a high BMI, oh, uh, one of the most okay. important things you need to do is yeah. to get it down to an optimal level. Sure. And I'm talking about, you know, definitely under 22, 23, um, yeah. but more somewhere between 18 and 20 would be really ideal. Uh, and, um, you know, this, this one switch in your body, this one change is going to, um, give you a huge health advantage. Uh, yeah. blood pressure is going to go down. Um, your chances of joint pain and injury are going to go way down because you're putting less, um, uh, 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 weight on your, on your joints. And if you look at any of the studies, um, because, you know, I did a human clinical trial, for osteoarthritis and using senolytics. And I started, started getting into like, 
you know, what does a few extra pounds do to the pressure that's on your joints? It, it's amazing. It's like, um, you know, for every pound you increase your weight, it's like four pounds go on that particular joint. So um, it, it, it's a really important health step that people need to take early on, again, way before looking at supplements and, and um, uh, stem cells or senolytics or things like that, is they really ought to be uh, doing the most they can to get their body weight um, in as ideal um, proportion as they can. And I think the ketogenic diet, if nothing else, even if you only do it once in your life, um, for a period of a few weeks is to just retrain your body how to burn um, fat. And then switching from a ketogenic diet, say, is your first step. So switch, try it first. And then go to a time-restricted diet. I think you'll find that it's easier to do it that way because your body went through a period where it was just consuming fats. And so overnight, you're not going to wake up saying, oh, my God, I am so hungry for a piece of bread or, you know, some pasta, uh, whatever your favorite comfort food is. And that, um, you know, you'll, you'll be able to make some of these other lifestyle changes stick. So I, th I think the ketogenic diet is really important there. Um, it definitely turns on autophagy. Um, it, I think long range, it's probably not sustainable for most people. Uh, and I think certainly it can be done terribly. Uh, so a lot of things that I read that are based on, you know, how great the ketogenic diet is um, sound good. But then when you look at the actual menus that they're suggesting, um, they look disastrous to me. Um, so um, I, I do think that, it, that there's a place for it. But, you know, again, most of the evidence points towards a primarily um, vegetable-based diet um, full of, you know, healthy legumes, uh, lower on the starch side, lower on the high-energy carbohydrates like grains. Um, I stopped consuming grains entirely. Um, three to four years ago, and because I take a lot of um, uh, blood tests, one of the first things I noticed was as soon as I did that, my C-reactive protein, which is a measurement, uh, among other things, of uh, the amount of inflammation you have in your body, um, it, it dropped uh, even more so than it had, um, you know, by switching from a high glycemic to a low glycemic. Uh, vegetarian diet. Mm -hmm. You know, my my, I, I eat a lot of uh, actually. So, well, we, time is advancing here, so I'm concerned which way to even go here. But we're yeah, we're we're, we're sort of running against up against the wall uh, very soon. Right, but. right, right. So, so let me then just ask you this. Um, okay, so so we covered the title, the switch, people need to turn on and off the switch and you can't have it in one situation only all the time. That's the big takeaway. You have to alternate and you suggest uh, that we alternate sort of eight months of the time autophagy should be on and four months uh, per year it should be off uh, in your book. And you talk about intermittent fasting, protein cycling and keto. Great. So now give me just a few tips here that people can take away and apply to their life right now, today? 
I think this was probably the hardest part of the book to write. And I have to thank Kristen Loberge, my co-author, uh, very much in um, uh, helping me sort of um, work through this section and figure out um, sort of what to recommend. And I didn't want to make this a, here's what you need to do. Because first of all, I don't think the evidence is there that there's only one way to do this. I think what you need to know is you need to cycle mTOR and autophagy off and on. That's the most important thing to learn from this book. Uh, implementing it, um, that's where I would get into the, you have to have autophagy on more than you have mTOR on proportionally. I think, you know, eight out of 12 uh, uh, is a good ratio. And I think you could do that over a couple of weeks, a couple of months, or a year. Um, so however you want to break it up and whatever works for you, whatever simple, because some people just want to know, um, okay, I'm on this diet for X number of weeks or X number of days or X number of months. And then I, I switch, you know, and I'll do the other. Um, for some people, they're going to want to maybe change things up more often. And I think that can be done where, you know, you, you even one day a week have sort of a feast day and you eat some of those foods that you otherwise crave because you can certainly get autophagy up and running and doing its job in the remaining six days. Um, so I don't think that there's a hard and fast rule that you have to follow. And again, I'm trying to give, well, I think this is going to be optimal, you know, this 80-12 uh, eight, eight to 12 ratio, um, of autophagy on. Um, but you know, how you implement mint it, I think is more a personal choice a until we have like long-term studies that show other ways of doing this. Yeah. And you know, that's the biggest takeaway for me. And that's an area that I definitely need to work on. And I'm very motivated to do it. Uh, intermittent fasting, for example, so that I can turn on my autophagy because I believe that's where I'm failing currently. Uh, and I believe that's my BMI is about 24.5. It's not optimal. Uh, and I, I, I think the reason is because of the psychological uh, background that I shared with you. Um, I, I eat very good vegan food, but I eat a lot of it. Uh, and I also eat it for longer period than I should. So my autophagy is probably off 99% of the time. And so that's the biggest takeaway for me. I need to be disciplined with intermittent fasting. I need to do that very focused. And one of the things that I looked, uh, by the way, takeaway, uh, this conversation, you have at the, at the end of the book, a number of tests that you recommend your people do. That's phenomenal. I went back and I looked at my tests for the last five years because I've been doing it the scientific method. Every six months I do a blood test uh, and I watch all my markers. And so I've been watching my cholesterol drop, my triglycerides drop, like improving in every way possible. But one thing I noticed creeping up and that you would not be surprised by is my sugar has been increasing. So it originally was 4.5, 4.678. Now it's between 5 and 5.1. Now it's still totally normal and all that, but it's kind of going up and it's it's less optimal than I would like it to be. So now you've motivated me to get on top of that. 
by diminishing my high glycemic vegetables and, and things and going to the low glycemic more and being more autophagy on and I'm sure that's going to help me bring back that sugar. Um, so thank you for that. That's that. Those are the biggest lessons for me, and I'm going to apply them in my life 100% directly to the best of my ability. Now, let me just ask you, James, before we take off, um, take, can you share with us for for just a couple of minutes about your lab? Because this was about uh, the, your book so far. But what what is the lab that you've created in in Florida, and what is uh, something that you can share with us, perhaps about your work, and then how can people follow you and your work in that lab? Well, I was um, going back and forth to Harvard uh, maybe twice a year uh, during the peak years of working on this supercentenarian project. Um, George Church had introduced me to David Sinclair, uh, who's also a professor in the genetics department, and uh, really incredible guy, uh, definitely a life extensionist. In fact, I was at a conference where he announced that he had just gotten tenure and could sort of tell the world that his focus of his research was primarily extending healthy lifespan, which I was very happy to, to hear him say. And um, in um, early 2016, uh, he told me that... Um, well, he asked me what I knew about NAD. We talked for a little bit, and uh, it really piqued my interest in this molecule, uh, nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, which uh, basically, um, among other things, is involved in the um, Krebs cycle and making ATP in the mitochondria and is sort of a, a byproduct of the NADPH uh, NADH that um, is used in the mitochondria. And over uh, some amount of time, the body has learned to utilize in all kinds of ways as a coenzyme. So some really important uh, anti-aging genes, like all the sirtuins and uh, PARP, which is a DNA repair um, uh, gene, uh, FOXO, are very much dependent upon NAD being available. And so I started doing research on NAD myself. I went to a conference and sat next to a doctor, John Sturgis from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. We started talking about the lack of uh, clinical evidence um, uh, and scientific studies about NAD and whether or not these um, genes were turned off or turned on. So I filed um, a protocol with an IRB committee, got approved, and I did my first clinical trial that I ran as a interventional clinical trial. So the supercentenarian study was a, a clinical trial, but just observational. This was one in which we were providing a compound to people, in this case, intravenous NAD, and, um, and we looked at the pharmacokinetics of it and also at the gene expression of sirtuins and things like that. And this launched me into doing a series of different clinical trials because over the years I've gotten, uh, made many lists of like important molecules and genes and things of interest for aging. And, um, and so at this moment, I have about eight approved uh, human clinical trials. Wow. And um, we've probably done six of them, uh, or at least uh, had 
six of them go at least a year so far. And uh, we've gotten some really interesting results. I was using primarily collaborators at universities to do the analytics of this. And uh, we just weren't doing things fast enough. So uh, I was very lucky that some people approached me and wanted to know how they could help speed things up. And they ended up making very sizable donations. And so now I have this uh, really great analytical laboratory with a mass spectrometer, which is what we use to measure NAD levels and proteins in, in blood cells. Um, we have a state-of-the-art uh, PCR, uh, um, um, immunofluorescence, uh, uh, immunochemistry, all kinds of uh, sequencing uh, equipment. So we can now look at uh, uh, DNA sequencing of uh, uh, bacteria and blood in, in um, uh, I'm sorry, bacteria and viruses in human blood, as well as like the Horvath methylation profiles. Um, so um, we have this great set of analytical tools now to look at various anti-aging therapies and to see whether or not they're working as advertised, so to speak, and how we can improve them. So most of my work these days is centered on analyzing blood samples from elderly people that are doing various interventions. That That's fantastic, James. I'm so happy that you're like scaling up your work and it's so amazing. It's so inspiring. And I'm looking forward to see the, the next results that you're going to produce. How can people follow you and your work? How can they find out the results out of those human trials that you're running? Well, we, we haven't uh, quite figured that out. Um, so the bulk of our work has gone towards creating peer review um, scientific papers. And we feel that this is the best way um, to at least at first provide information to physicians because they're not going to want to hear about anecdotal evidence. You know, this has been around since time immemorial where, you know, whether you're talking about homeopathic medicines or faith healers, you know, they have plenty of anecdotal evidence. But what we want to show is uh, what changed in blood chemistry, uh, what changed at the molecular level, which genes were turned up and turned down, which biological aging clocks were affected by these interventions. Um, so there's lots of ways to to sort of look at aging, we're taking sort of a molecular biology approach and we're publishing this. A lot of the information is disseminated through um, various organizations that I'm either friends with or help fund us. So the Life Extension Foundation, which publishes a really great monthly magazine, um, primarily about supplements and of course it's related to or tied to a supplement company. Um, you know, they publish a lot of our um, sort of popular data, meaning what would you tell your mom or dad uh, to do based on some of the research we've done with senolytic compounds, NAD, uh, rapamycin, et cetera. Um, and at some point, I think we have to transition and either start doing our own newsletter or maybe short videos or something like that. But um Right I was going now, to say, don't you have a website or a newsletter that people can subscribe to? 
We, we have a website, but frankly, it hasn't been updated for a year. Um, so, you know, I have a lot of people that write and say, please put me on a list. And I keep saying to myself, you know, well, you know, all of these emails are going to go into a newsletter list at some point. But at the moment, you know, we, we still have a limited budget. Um, all of our money is going into clinical trials and running these analytical uh, analysis of those blood uh, samples. Um, so, you know, we're not big enough to have a PR department or somebody who writes blogs for us or, or et cetera. Um, so I'm hoping that we get to that maybe by 2021. Um, but my list of things that I have to do experimentally is so long. And I think it's more important that we get this done and then we tell people such as you and LEF and, and other organizations what we're doing so they can then reach out to the hundreds of thousands of um, uh, you know, followers that they have to, to spread the, the word. Um, so for the time being, we're, we're just sort of doing the best we can in that area. And I'm focusing on the science mostly. Like all good scientists, you're focused on doing science, not PR and marketing, which is one reason why I'm such a big fan of yours and why I love you so much. So, James, we've talked, I stolen almost two hours of your time today, for which I'm extremely grateful. But what would be the parting message, the one that would wrap up this conversation with you and that you want to send us away with? Uh, that really has to do with the title of the book. And this is, you know, when I read popular articles on dieting or nutrition, and they don't mention anything at all about um, this mTOR autophagy switch and all of these incredible things that autophagy does. Um, it, it really makes me wonder how people can properly follow these diets, whether it's veganism, um, whether it's a ketogenic diet, whether it's a paleolithic diet. I see people doing poorly on all of them, primarily because, you know, they don't understand the mechanism of the switch. So really what I want them to, to learn is um, what the switch is, uh, how and when it turns off and on, and that the health results of cycling this back off and on on a regular basis. And, and that's really pretty much it. If they know this and they can at least reflect on what their current diets are doing, I think they'll be healthier for it. So your message is activate the mTOR autophagy switch. Yes, cycle back and forth, and uh, you, should be, you should be healthier because of it. James W. Clement, thank you so much for writing the switch for helping me get refocused on intermittent fasting and protein cycling and so on that I will do in my life as much as I can and for giving us two hours of your time today. Thank you, James. Thank you very much. It was uh, great talking with you. I hope, I hope we stay in closer contact uh, and um, talk more about uh, your progress too. I'd love to be able to come visit you in Florida and check out your new lab and new facility. That'd be great. Please do. I will. Thank you, James.
you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 